Okay, when I was on the when I was on the uh, airplane here, I um, uh, I was reading a magazine called Res, and I I, I happened upon this um, this quote by Rob Nilsson, who's a filmmaker. It says I sometimes think I know what I'm doing, but do I know what I'm doing? I hope not, because then I'd start doing it on purpose instead of with purpose. And uh, that sort of st struck a chord with me because it's really true, of, I think, of, of uh, this, the, if I look back on all the radio pieces I've done, the ones that um, stick with me the most and the th ones I think I'm the most happy with are the ones where I, I you know, I have this kind of routine. I kind of get into, you know, the more you produce or the longer you produce, you sort of get into these things you always tend to do. And the best pieces are the ones where I have broken out of that routine. And I do something that I, I really wouldn't have done normally, but, but something that sprung from a need that the piece had um, that has a real, real reason for being there. So um, the first piece I'm going to play is a piece I did for uh, a show called Studio 360. Um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a profile of a, of a composer named Lois Vierk. And um, when, I was, when I was recording the interview, it was in the middle of a really loud thunderstorm. And uh, this, this th thunder had this enormous, it was clipping my microphone, you know, and it was, it was just, and it was really a beautiful sound. And it, so there's a point in the interview where I had to decide whether to go on with the interview or to stop and take a break so that the noise didn't bleed through into the interview. And, um, and so when I, when I took the tape back to the studio and started editing it and trying to figure out how I was going to use it, I, kept, I found myself going back and back to that tape of where the thunder was hitting. You know, I just thought it sounded so great. And um, as the piece sort of st started to take shape, I began to see how that thunder could actually be a really an, an interesting element in the piece and uh, be used to support the ideas that were being talked about in the piece. So I'm just going to play this piece, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So when you're composing, how do you know when you've come up with something beautiful where do you get that sense of what beauty is? One of my pieces, I call it River Beneath the River. There's a, 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 an expression in, in Spanish, River Beneath the River. Everyone can see the river. That's just flowing along. But there's also a river underneath that is the deepest soul of humankind. That deep, deep soul. I, I think you have to get down to what you think, what you feel, what you know, is the bottom of it all. Wow. <laughs> you think this is going to be usable? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll just keep recording. Um, and if there's a problem with it, we'll just... We'll just take a break. <laughs> it's a beautiful sound, though. Yeah. I always start out with the, the sounds themselves. The gracefulness of a sound or the lyric quality. I'm always drawn to sounds, they're gradually changing. Uh, certainly, I love uh, glissando. Some of my sounds, other people might not call them beautiful. 
like five electric guitars playing really loudly, um, strumming and glissing as, as fast and as loudly as they can. Other people will say, wow, that's jarring, and it, it might be exciting um, and loud and, and uh, raucous. And they might not call it beautiful, but to me, I, I do go after beauty. I think that's beautiful. I wouldn't have written it. <laughs> but that's just me. As a young um, person, the thing that drew me into music more than anything else was my piano lessons and playing Beethoven. That kind of getting to the bottom of things, I, I, I enjoy that in Beethoven. He didn't, I don't think, really um, censor. No, he, he got right to, to what, what was there, what was underneath. Of the interlocking logic of the piece as a whole. Besides having a, a beautiful phrase, a beautiful sound, I want the whole piece to, to make some sense, to have a beauty of its own in, in its structure, in all parts of it. The form. I think if the form and the sounds are matched or they're one and the same almost um, there's like a whole other kind of a, a deep level of beauty and I try not to censor anything I might throw it away later, but I try not to censor it. But sometimes you, you, you write something down and you think it's dumb and silly as you're doing it. And then a week later, two weeks later, you look at it and you say, you know, that's the basis of my whole piece. And, and it's about not being afraid to throw away those hundred pages to get the one. But like, I mean, but let's say you have a hundred pages and, and you have one of them that you know is what you're really trying to do. How do you know that that's the one page, you know, like, what is it? I trust myself. And I think you have to. You can't be afraid. Wow. Do <laughs> you want to hold off you, you for you a little bit? You might want to wait. Yeah. Or we, could, or we could just, you know, trust it and keep going, you know, and um, maybe later I'll find out that it's the basis of the whole piece. Maybe. Yeah. Hmm. The more I write, the more I throw away. And you keep trying, and sometimes, sometimes you, you feel like you get it. And sometimes you feel like you don't. I don't even try to look for it. You just you just write and see what's there. 
you get to the bottom of what is you and you let it be. say sound design, um, I think the, the way I'm going to start by answering that question, what I think of we mean when we say sound design is by first talking about what I don't think sound design is. Um, I don't think sound design has anything to do with being more detailed. And I don't think it has to do with um, being, you know, more dense or louder, or anything like that. Although those all can be very, very useful things if, they, if they're used properly. Uh, but what sound design really has to do with is, is making a piece more meaningful and choosing the sounds you have, uh, or choosing the sounds with a sense of purpose. Um, and uh, what good, what constitutes, um, or what, what's, and uh, sound design to me is the, um, anything that's not a linguistic aspect of the piece. So uh, anything that's not a, a word, like, um, uh, so at the sound of a person's voice is sound design. Um, the, how they use their voice is sound design. Um, of course, the sound effects in music are all sound design, um, but sound can how you how you juxtapose sounds, how you edit them, and how you mix them. These are all sound design decisions. And, and if you do a radio piece, you are a sound designer already, um, just by virtue of working with sound. Because you know, um, so my particular background, I've I've been working in radio for about ten years. I've been uh, freelancing for the past five. I just took a full time job on a new. PRI show, but um, I uh, I started off. I got into into radio after studying composition in school. I studied music composition, got a master's at Mills College, and I was always really very interested in um, speech as a musical material and natural speech, and, and using the recording to find the music in natural speech. And I think that comes a lot from uh, a Verez, uh, Edgar Verez idea that uh, music is organized sound and time and um, that r I found that a really liberating idea and this is something I brought up yesterday and, uh, at the uh, big session is that if if you know music is organized sound and radio is all organized sound does that mean that all radio is music and it, I mean it, 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 to a certain extent I mean it's, it's useful to have those distinctions you know music and sound effects it, it makes us easy to, it makes it easy to talk about it but I also think there's this mode that you can listen to um, all sound as music in a musical context, and that might open up ideas, you know, uh, for for how to how to approach the sonic design of a piece. Um, for example, um, uh, in that piece that you just heard, that thunder was used as as a thematic device, much like uh, maybe repeating a theme or like an ABA in a in a piece of music might be, and it gave the the whole piece a sense of structure. Um, the same idea came up recently. I um, I did a piece about. Um, a film director named Michel Gondry for Studio 360, and um, this—I'm uh, a really big fan of his work. He—I—I uh, I, I I rented a DVD of his music videos about a year ago, and um, I was—I loved it so much. I went out and bought it the next day, and um, and so I, I pitched his idea to do a piece about him to Studio 360. And I, I, I tried to get an interview with him, and they wanted me to wait for his movie to come out which was like a year later. And so I kind of kept corresponding with him over time, you know, and I, I, finally, I finally got the interview and I was so happy, you know, and uh, so excited because I was talking to one of my favorite 
film directors, and this is what his voice sounds like. It's a double savage because we got lucky to work with Palm Picture for that. The only downside is never they you never got, paid us. What what you got? Palm Picture. Palm Picture. <laughs> probably popping. Oh, Palm Palm Picture. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so this was a real challenge, and and so I I was thinking about how to deal with this, and I decided well maybe I could make the sound of his voice sort of a recurring theme in the piece um, and you know sort of hang the piece on that a little bit and um, one of the one of the th well let me, I'll show I'll, first I'll play you how I actually started the piece and then I'll talk a little bit more about that as you listen to Michel Gondry the first thing you'll notice is that he has a very thick French accent in real life you don't uh, live with cut you, you say that again because I can't understand what you in the real, your real life you don't have cuts cuts yeah. He's explaining how films have a lot in common with dreams. Uh, you have flashbacks, you can dream backward, you can re dream repetitively the same moment again and again. There is an enormous amount of similarity between filmmaking and, and dream making. Okay, so that was a different clip than you heard before, but I chose that clip at the beginning because it led into this point that was really where I wanted the piece to begin. So um, I was sort of Picking, picking these moments, but picking the ones that really served the piece at that particular time. And the thing that kind of made me, convinced me that this was going to work um, was that I also had a clip of him um, having, struggling with a word, where he, he, which, was, which was a point he was making that I knew I wanted the piece to end on. And he was, he was struggling with the word fulfilled. So it had this really nice kind of poetic connection. Um, so I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this entire piece. I'm just going to play it and stop it as we go along and talk about what's going on and what kinds of sound design choices were made. I might play certain sections over again so we can hear them again. Um, so. As you listen to Michel Gondry, the first thing you'll notice is that he has a very thick French accent. In real life, you don't uh, live with cut. You, you say that again because I can't understand what you d in the real your real life you don't have cuts cuts yeah he's explaining how films have a lot in common with dreams uh, you have flashbacks you can dream backward you can re dream repetitively the same moment again and again there is an enormous amount of similarity between filmmaking and, and dream making hi welcome back to another episode of television educative Tonight, I'll show you how dreams are prepared. This is the opening scene from Michel Gondry's film, The Science of Sleep. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal, who's fantasizing that he's in the middle of a television studio made of cardboard, and he's showing how dreams are made. First, we put in some random thoughts, a little bit of reminiscences of the day, mixed with some memories from the past. Love, friendships, relationships, and all those ships. Okay. I'm talking quietly to not wake myself up. Okay, right there. I'd um, you hear when this music comes and you hear these bubbles. I actually added those bubbles into the piece. Um, those weren't in the film soundtrack, but you know he's talking about boiling or cooking something. I thought it was a boiling sound, and I thought it also sort of had this sort of surreal, dreamlike quality. And I, I kind of wanted it, wanted the piece to sort of become a dream a little bit at that point. And the, the music you hear is uh, it's by Raymond Scott. It's from a, a uh, uh, an album called Soothing Sounds for Baby that was released in the early '60s. It's all analog, 
um, synthesis. And so um, and I'll talk about why I chose that in a minute. I'm going to play this section for you. I'm talking quietly to not wake myself up. I dream I go back to live in my childhood house. He's obsessed with his childhood house. Two times a week, three times a week, probably last night. I dream I go back to live in my childhood house. I lived there when I was from zero to 18. So my brain was very absorbent. It would catch every detail. Now I know every detail. And this has as much importance in me than all the rest of the entire world. At this age, everything is surprising, so everything feels more sharp. I guess I like to be back in these moments where the question of what the world is was to be completely discovered. Okay, so there's a couple of things going on there. The, the music you hear, uh, first he's talking about childhood and, and there's something very childlike about it. But um, there, there's also, there's a couple of nice things about the music. One is that it's very repetitive, which I think works really nicely with, with, uh, with talking over it because you know, it, it gives the ta talking a place in the music. Um, but the, the other thing is there's a certain sense of phrasing to the music that the, the music's edited to match the phrasing in, his, in what he's saying. So, so the, you know, he says a sentence and then there's sort of a musical equivalent to a sentence underneath it that mimics the same, same sense of phrasing. Um, the other thing that I want to point out is that I, I added a sound right here where he says... Uh, Surprising, so everything feels more sharp. He said, dun, 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 dun. That, that was, I had a little electric piano next to my computer <laughs> and I played that to accentuate the sharpness of the music, to make the music a little bit more sharp there. I used the same sound at the end. Oops. ...of what the world is was to be completely discovered. And then of course you, you are, you're all familiar probably with Ira Glass's fond of talking about how when you drop music out, then the next point seems really, really important. So that's what's going on there. That's that dun dun, it's the same as before. I use that because the music actually didn't end there. I just sort of use it to mask and edit to make the ending of the music sound more smooth and to give it more sort of reverberance going into the next section. Of what the world is was to be completely discovered. And if there's one thing that characterizes all of Michel Gondry's work, it's that sense of childlike wonder. It's especially true of The Science of Sleep, which is a semi-autobiographical film about a guy named Stefan, played by Bernal, who has trouble telling dreams from reality. I can see Golden the Pony Boy galloping here, here right in front of me. His dreams are depicted using stop-motion animation, and they have a handmade quality to them. There's an entire city made of toilet paper tubes, and the clouds are made of cotton balls. So there is a cellophane water, for instance. The water is made of cellophane candy wrappers. And it's very vivid, it's very uh, alive. And Stefan created that, dun, dun, that was added as well. It was, um, it's there to, um, first he says the word vivid, I liked sort of making the music a little bit more vivid there. It also adds a little space because at this point he's sort of shifting gears and talking about a different sort of sets of ideas that in his film, it's a minor shift, but it's, it, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, just a slight shift in perspective. So I'll play that again. And they have it. Actually, I'm gonna. So there is a cellophane water, for instance. The water is made of cellophane candy wrappers. And it's very vivid, it's very uh, alive. And Stefan creates childlike inventions, like glasses that show the world in 3D, 
and a bicycle helmet that transmits the name of the playing card you're holding. Hey, what's this? That's the one-second time travel machine I told you about. Um, the time machine, it's a... Uh... It's not so childlike in, in a way because it's it's like a concept and uh, yeah but the thing the cool thing about the time machine is it only goes one second back yeah, in it's, time it's useless what are you going to do with one second it's fun it's sort of fun like a toy would be fun like a toy. well it's something that you could use to seduce a girl you have to press this button okay okay so so at that point where he says you seduce seduce a girl it's a way of getting into the next section where we're shifting gears again but using the clip instead of narration he's He's shifting. Up until this point, we were talking about the childlike qualities of his work, and now we're going to go, go into a new section where we're talking more about uh, meeting girls. And also, follow, just immediately following that clip, I want to point out one thing. I'll just play it one more time. Like, well, it's something that you could use to seduce a girl. You have to press this button. There's, okay. a, there's this switch that shit switches on. There's sort of a rhythm to it. And I, um, there's there's a rhythm to the pe way people talk, and I, I, I think a lot about that when I'm choosing edits and, and making things happen in time so so like we'll like I'll, I'll sort, sort of go over that with you a little bit um one second it's fun it's sort of fun like a toy would be fun like a toy. well it's something that you could use to seduce a girl you have to press this button okay so it's like i just think about this rhythm of what's going on i try to make the sounds and, and or at least play be aware of what that rhythm is and use it to the piece's advantage um and and the the, the rhythm of events is going to create your sense of momentum in a piece um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Oops, sorry about that. You have to press this. Oh, that's the sound for the movie the soundtrack. You have to press this button, okay? Let's try some for the past. Let's try some for the past. Hey, it's working. In the film, Stefan becomes infatuated with the girl living next door, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg. And he uses the time machine to go one second into the future. Wait, 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 wait. Where she finds they're suddenly kissing. Twice. Hey, what are you... The, the first time is the future and the, 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 the second one was just the present. Oh, well, maybe we have different perspectives on the future. But, okay, so I just wanted to point out again in, the, in this one part Suddenly here. kissing. Twice. So there's a sound in between my copy, you know. Um, and it, again, it's, it, it sort of emphasizes that that line twice, you don't really expect it to, the copy to go there. And it, it makes it, you know, it's sort of a false start in the, in the so sound clip, you know, um, so that you're more surprised when you hear me say twice. I'll play that one more time. Second Oops. machine to go one second into the future. Wait, 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 wait. Where she finds they're suddenly kissing twice. Hey, what are you? The, the first time is the future and the, 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 the second one was just the present. Oh, well, maybe we have different perspectives on the future. But Stefan's loose grasp of reality makes it difficult for them to connect. He freaks her out. And his love goes unfulfilled. It's a common theme in a lot of Michel Gondry's work. He often tells the story of when he was a boy and he had a mad crush on a girl. He saw her sitting alone at a party and he asked her to dance. No, she said. Why, he asked. Because you are too tiny. He wrote a song about it. So I, here I brought this music in at this point. We're, we're going more into uh, Michel Gondry's emotional life. That's why the music comes in. Um, also, it's sort of an echo of the music we heard before, the sort of the baby music. It has that same sort of electric piano quality to it. Um, I'll play that one more time. And he asked her to dance. No, she said. Why, he asked. Because you are too tiny. 
He wrote a song about it. I'm so tiny, I'm so tiny. It would take a million steps to reach you. Not so shiny, I feel crappy, I'm so tiny. The rejection leaves more marks. Rejection leaves more marks. Than fulfilled love. So you hear I repeated him there. Um, that was uh, that's something that's happened a couple times so far in the piece, and this particular one is the is a literal reiteration of what he just said. And I think that's um, I, I liked that because uh, it, it sort of goes with what he was saying, and that he's saying rejection leaves more marks. And in my mind, a mark is something that you, you keep reliving in your head over and over again. And so I, I liked the sort of the little literal repetition because it seemed to embody that idea. Like the Tom Cruise. Oops, I'm sorry. It's the wrong part. Where was I? Yeah. Okay. The rejection leaves more marks. Rejection leaves more marks. Than fulfilled love. And marks are what makes you creative. Michel Gondry has tried all kinds of things to meet girls. He went to art school. He took up the drums and joined a rock band. He made music videos. He made feature films. You get creative to get more recognition on get the girl, basically. And then you spend your time being creative, which is a lonely process. And you don't, you're not very social. And then you get even further from the girl you want to be close. Yeah, I mean, but I always felt like, um, like I, I, I relate to that aspect of your work. And I always felt that being creative would actually attract Women. But the problem is, you're creative, you become creative because there is other guy out who are like the Tom Cruise, you know? The guy who is not creative but he's good looking and he's gonna chat the girl. So you're gonna spend all this time to overcome that and become better than they are and show the girl how great you are. But what you forget is this guy it's going to spend the same amount of time be better at chatting up the girl. So when you come out with your great project and you masterize your art, you are left on your own. And even now, sometimes I go to a party and I feel you have all those guys who are like, to me, parasites, who like kind of worship my work and stuff, but they are here and they still here and going to beat me up to socialize with people. Okay. So I wanted to express... <laughs> So I want to point out a couple of things about that. One is that you notice there's, it went for a very long time without any sound design. I was just talking. And uh, I, I wanted to emphasize the sort of the space that the interview was taking place in um, when I came in and offered some, you know, a little bit of re response to what he was talking about. It becomes more, we're, we're in the room and we're, talk we're seeing these two people. And then when you hear the music coming again, we're going back into his, we're going more into his headspace and we're sort of reliving this emotion. And I, I use the same music I used earlier in the piece when, when I was talking about the story, you know, where the girl told him he was too tiny, it's the exact same music. And so, it's, so I sort of use that as like a light motif. Um, it's sort of a, it, like, you know, a character would have a, a, a certain theme every time they appear in a movie or something. It's, that's, it, it's sp supposed to r take you back to this emotional state. So the, the music comes in when we, when, when we shift focus into uh, his, his more, his head, heads, head, his headspace about the, the event. So the rigid. Let's see. Um, 
where was it? Here. And even now, sometimes I go to a party and I feel you have all those guys who are like, to me, parasites who like kind of worship my work and stuff, but they are here and they still here and gonna beat me up to socialize with people. I wanted to express this that I had in me to show that how much I wish I was with this person and how sad I was that it was not happening without saying, oh, she's a bitch, oh, uh, I was stupid, just looking at uh, what happened and share the pain of not having a dream being fulfilled. Fulfilled. Fulfilled or fulfilled? Fulfilled. Fulfilled, yeah. Fulfilled. Even if in the beginning, it okay. I, w I just want to point one thing out about this next section. Um, I want you to, when you're listening to it, listen for the sharp bell sounds. There's, it's kind of a soft bell sound that's like an electric piano sound. But I want you to listen for the sharp, the sharp bell sounds, and just listen to where they happen in relation to the speech. Feel full or fulfilled? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. Yeah. Fulfilled. <laughs> Even if in the beginning it was just an excuse to find a girlfriend, it becomes something else. I mean, I still have those frustration uh, feelings, but I can live with them because I have a, a, a fulfilling life through creativity. So when I was doing that, I was re really paying attention to where those fell in relation to his speech. They never really fall on a word, they're always in between. And, and there's something about the phrasing of, of those bells and the, and the melody in that section as a whole that just sort of goes along with the phrasing of, of, um, of his sentences and what he's saying. And that, that was a really conscious decision, something I always try to do with music, because it's really my strong belief that whenever you add um, speech, put speech over music, you're essentially creating a new piece of music. And um, you really have to be you know, conscious of that. It's, it's, sort of, it's almost like rap, you know? Um, and uh, you know, all sound has musical potential, and, and speech is just another element in that music. When when you're putting it over a music bed, um, and that's the end of the piece. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, a lot. But um, I'll start with one. <laughs> the earlier in the piece, when you had the music come under, were you trying to match the the rhythm of the voice to the specific beats in the music? Uh, which pieces are you talking about? I, it was early, I can't remember. Um, are you talking about the soothing sounds for baby? Yeah, I think yeah, so. yeah. I'm always, I'm always thinking about the rhythm of the voice and the rhythms, the, the, the beats in the music. And I mean, you can either play to the beats or you can play against them, you know, that's, that's definitely an option. You just have to know what you're doing and why. What if you don't have a music background and you, you know, I would guess I'm not the only one in the room who doesn't know much about music. Um, where, how would you know where the beats are? Well, or just generally, like what advice would you give to non-musicians, non-composers? I, th I think yeah. if you can dance, you can do it, you know? <laughs> it, it's the same, same instinct, you know? Uh, uh, <laughs> then, then, then maybe that's not your forte, and you should, you should maybe work, work with ambient beds, maybe, you know? Um, but um, no, I mean, I think I mean, it's it's a definitely an element in in the music that's there for you to use if you if you want to and if you can if if you decide to. Yes. 
You talked about the, the aesthetic quality of that, that 1960s piece being what attracted you to using it here, but how do you decide what's appropriate for a piece if it's not a musician you're interviewing? Well, that was, that, the, the baby music was not an, a musician I was interviewing. No, I know, but so... Oh, how, do, how did I choose that? How did that? you choose it? I, uh, well, there's other music in the piece, and I, I thought it shared a lot um, of qualities with the other music. The rest of the music is all from, from films that Michel Gondry has made. Most of it's from his, his film that we're talking about, but like the last music you heard was from a short film he made called La Letter, which is on his DVD. Um, Do you have rules that... that I don't have guide? rules. It's, it's really instinctual. It's like you, you have to, it has to feel right. But I mean, in that case, again, I, 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 he was talking about his childhood, and there's a very childlike quality to it. It's very repetitive. So I thought that it, it's easier to put speech over repetitive music, generally speaking, although you can put it over non-repetitive music too. It's not to say that you can't do it. It's just, generally speaking, it makes better music better if it's repetitive. Um, and and I, I thought, and I saw, I heard in the music a way of, it's just, it, there's something about the music that has phrasing that's much like speech. The, the, the lengths of the, uh, the sections were, were the, it's the way people talk. And so I, I just could hear how it would make a nice little bed. And I, I, could, I could easily edit it to be useful. Uh, there's a lot of editing in that music. Uh, Actually, uh, drawing along with that, do you find that you have to sometimes really heavily edit music tracks in order to fit the speech? Yeah, almost always. Okay. It's really unusual for me to not have to edit music. And how do you go about you know, doing that? How do I, how do I? Well, I mean, you lay down the music track first, uh -huh. and then you have the speech, and then you start touching the music. Right, and oftentimes I'll edit the speech to the music. I, I always edit the speech to the music. But, um, and it's, so it's sort of a feedback thing. You can see like, oh, well, if I, if I move the speech here, and then if I edit out this bar here, then this will happen there. You know, you sort of, sort of, you're responding to what you have in front of you. But a lot of times, I'll audition music. What, you know, before I load it into the session, I'll just play things on a CD and I'll play the track that I'm looking for a music bed for over it. And a lot of times it just, you can hear, oh yeah, this, this works, this is like perfect. And it, you know, um, and that's why I, I don't like loading things in, like digitally off the CD, importing CDs off of a CD. I like to play it off of a CD into Pro Tools because then I can do that more easily. It's faster, you can just play it like, you know, oh no, you know, you know, so. Um, I loved how you framed your piece around Game Girl, and I thought that was so genius because it takes the interview to a whole different, untypical place. And I'm just wondering, at, one, at what point did you make that decision to have it sort of a discussion between two guys about how to like Game Girl, right. and then the happens to be each other. So how did that happen? Um, well, when I went into the piece, I originally I thought it was going to be a piece about dreaming, and I um, I talked to him. I had an hour with him, uh, and I. Actually, all of the material you hear in the piece came from the first half hour of the interview. Uh, the second half hour, I talked about things about, that were specific to the DVD that weren't really relevant to this piece. I didn't think people would necessarily find them interesting in this context. Uh, but after I did the interview, it was just the most interesting part of the interview to me. It was the part that I kept thinking about. And, and um, it was the part where he was the most emotionally revealing. And it was the part that was the least like something you might expect to hear and uh, sort of an arts feature on a movie director, you know. It's, it, it just, he, he seemed to be revealing, revealing himself in an unusual way. Yes? How do you sort of strike a balance between rhythm, finding the rhythm of the piece and actually just the subject matter of the piece? I mean, well, I think they're connected. Well, right, but is it when you, are there times when you're like, well, it's really important that I get this, 
but it's a different rhythm, feeling quite different rhythm. Is it easy to become over-obsessed with the rhythm? And no, I think it's essential to become over-obsessed with the, with the rhythm. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think that that's how, that, what you're doing, you're creating a, a listening experience. And so part of, part of doing that, part of keeping a listener um, engaged is, is creating a sense of pacing and um, uh, a momentum in the piece. And momentum is built through rhythm. Um, so, I mean, and rhythm says, contextualizes the information you're conveying. It, 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 you know, if, if, you, if you put a clip one, you know, half a second later, it'll mean one thing. But if you put it right up against the clip, it'll mean something else. You know, it has, it has a, a purpose. Rhythm has a purpose in the piece that, um, that ha has to come from the content of what you're trying to say. So do you have start with the content, the unscored, un sound designed essential, or is it really the whole thing's happening simultaneously? It's, it's how, I think it's best when it happens simultaneously. I mean, you can do, do it that way. You can think, oh, I want to say this, so this is, you can kind of logic it out. But I, um, honestly, the, 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 best, the best things, I have no idea where they come from. They just sort of are a lot of things coming together at once. You know? um, th those are the most satisfying to, to hear. Uh, any more? Oh, one. How do you incorporate music into pieces that aren't interviews? That aren't interviews. That aren't interviews. Um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. I'm, I'm kind of stuck on the bubbling sound that you added uh -huh. because it sounds like it was in the film. Uh -huh. And I. I would worry about conveying to listeners an idea that the film had this goofy sound in it, but it didn't. Well, the film has plenty of goofy sounds in it, so I don't think it's out of character with the film. But I, I, um, I don't, I don't have an issue with that actually. It's like it's just like adding music to me. It's like all part of the same thing. It's and the piece is more about the director's experience. It's not really about the film. Um, I felt like uh, everything I did was okay as long as you know because it was. It was using is in the service of telling the story about this director. Um, I mean, and also, you know, if you if you watch a lot of movie trailers and compare them to the movies, they do that a lot too. You know, it's really common. So. Any questions? I actually thought I remembered the bubble. Yeah. Hearing it, I was like, I've seen the movie, and I was like, oh yeah, the bubble, and there it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I added that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so th the next thing I'm going to talk about play for you is, um, I'm gonna, this is like, I'm, let's see how long is this, this is two, two and a half minutes or so. I'm just going to play this section, so from a, uh, an hour-long documentary I produced about four years ago about abortion called Shades of Grey, and um, I wrote all this music that you're going to hear. Um, I put this piece together all in one big Pro Tool session, there was like 24 tracks, and I um, had all the d separate instruments for the music and all of the different voices were all in the same session. So I was really composing the music and, and, putting, and choosing the clips and, 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 and working out the form of the piece all in the same sort of workspace. So this is, a, this is from about 10 minutes into the piece. Being a woman is hard. Men will never have a period like we do. They'll never cramp and they won't push your baby out. Never. They'll never understand what it's like when you find out you're pregnant and you have something inside of you and you get attached. That's being a woman. They think you can just go and get the abortion and it's over and done with. It's not how it works. You do what's best for you. It has to be right here. If it's not right in your heart, don't do it. Okay? You're welcome, honey. I've been where you're at. I'm a safe woman. You're safe with me. I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't do to myself. 
Okay. I just want to point out a couple of things about that clip you just heard. One is that um, first, there's a there's a sense of perspective that's that's unusual with it. You, who is she talking to? You know, is it you? Is it somebody in the room? And and that sort of forces you to maybe put yourself in the place of the person who's in the room. I thought that was really interesting, and and it sort of this perspective kind of reveals itself over time. The other thing I thought was interesting about that that I wanted to point out was a, a couple of seconds in, you hear her pulling tissues out of a tissue box. And I think that was an interesting. I didn't add it, it was there in the sound. And it kind of implies that the person she's talking to is crying, um, which I, th I think is a really interesting thing. It says something without saying it. So I'll, um, I'll play that one more time and then I'll let it go, for, go on. Being a woman is hard. Men will never have a period like we do. They'll never cramp and they won't push your baby out. Never. They'll never understand what it's like when you find out you're pregnant, you have something inside of you, and you get attached. That's being a woman. They think you can just go and get the abortion and it's over and done with. That's not how it works. You do what's best for you. It has to be right here. If it's not right in your heart, don't do it, okay? You're welcome, honey. I've been where you're at. I'm a safe woman. You're safe with me. I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't do to myself, okay? There truly is a sense that we can have, and I think if we all draw on our own experience, we can see this, where we feel safe to be who we are and to hold the views that we have. You know, the times that I've talked to people about having an abortion, it's, it's interesting because you don't always know what someone thinks about abortion. You don't know how they're going to take it when you tell them that you've been through one or that you've experienced one with somebody. I, I never even had such a hard time telling friends, and I always thought that it would change their whole opinions of me. That life is not yours. It's from God. Okay, I, I just want to say a couple things about that section. Um, first, when we, we interviewed, or Ari, my co-producer on this project, interviewed maybe 30 or 40 or more people for this. But f for this section, I, I, we, I, or for the piece, I ended up picking interviewees that sounded like the role they were playing in the piece because there's no narration in this piece at all. I wanted people to have sort of an intuitive sense of who people were and what their role was in the piece. And so, you know, the, the girl who's going through the abortion sort of sounds young and vulnerable. That was one of the people we interviewed that I thought really, it was like, a, it's a casting issue, you know? And um, it, it, it's as much about the timbre of the person's voice and the way that they talk as it is what they're saying. Um, and especially, especially because it's it's non-narrated, there's so much information that needs to just be conveyed innately, and um, I was well, uh, I was very, very aware of that when I was choosing material. Um, so I'll go on. And this next section, I kind of want you to hear how the uh, the voices are edited, and how that how that editing works with the music, and, and becomes sort of a part of the music. It's from God. This is steeped in very, very deep value systems. This whole issue feels like a, some sort of awful paradoxical problem that a philosophy professor cooks up to make his students crazy. People who are on either side of that, each side are in is pretty well based on, from their perspective, a non-negotiable place. Deep, utterly clear moral truth and more than just moral truth, defense of people who need defending. 
What happens though is the unwillingness to respect the values of the other side, the choice at some deep level not to do that. What does this young woman really want? What's troubling her? The difficulties of many people's lives are so great that it's often hard to make choices other than the choices for survival. Okay. So, so you heard in there, there's, there's that section where they go back and forth between the two voices. Is there, in music, that's, there's a term for that called hocketing. It's when you have two interlo interlocking melodies between two different instruments or voices. And um, I really liked that idea, first of all, just, just the idea of like counterpoint. But then there's something really interesting about it in that when I listen to it, it sounds as though if you, if you just thought of it as one continuous line, it makes a certain kind of sense. And if you break apart the parts, they each make sense on their own in another way. And also the fact that I, I'm having two people come together at that point emphasizes the point they're making to begin with. So there was all this sort of formal cohesiveness and, and really beautiful coming together of things that it just, it, it, it just sort of happened. I just sort of saw it in the material. I'm not exactly sure how to recommend spotting that in the material, but I think the key is to be open to spotting that in the material. And, um, and when it's there, if you're open to it, you'll, you'll find it. Um, I don't think you can really force something like that. I, I, think, um, I think it's okay if, it, if you don't see it in the material. Um, as long as you're open to it, you'll see it if it's there. You know, it never works if you try to force it. So, um, and that's it. Does anybody have any questions about? Yeah. I wanted to ask you when, when you're when you're looking in that process when you're looking from tape. Are you working from um, from log or just from tape? I'm, I'm always working from tape. I, I've maybe transcribed four or five times in my life. So I I, I really love to work f with with the sound itself in Pro Tools, and I have this sort of method of going through sound file and pulling clips I'll I'll take an interview I'll go through and I'll I'll pull I'll, I'll edit each of the clips that I think is useful could possibly be useful in the piece uh, and I'll pull them down to the next track down and then what I'll do is I'll select that entire track copy it onto the next track down so I have two two tracks of clips and then I'll take the second track combine them all into one clump of clips so that, and, and put it somewhere else in the session, that's my work batch of clips. And then that way I can always go back to the interview and get more clips, and I can easily see what I pulled and what I didn't before. So if I want to find something I don't have. Also, if I lose track of a clip in my clumped batch that I really want to use, I can go back and find it easily too. So it's, it, it sort of allows for backtracking. Um, and, um, and I try to keep my sessions sort of organized through, where like I have work sections and I have sort of like, like like clip sections and, and original tape sections and like sort of work section in the piece. Oh, it's actually really simple <laughs> because like I have like in the beginning of the, and the first thing I have in the session is the piece and then I have like my work area and then I have my, my interview, raw interview area. So it's sort of a, a left to right process, but it's nice because when you, you just have to do a return and then play and you can play the piece from the beginning. You don't have to mute, worry about muting tracks. Everything is, is linear in time. So. And it frees all those tracks to use in the piece. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I've just been listening to listening to your stuff, and it's it's so rich, and you have so many elements in there. But you know, the show that I work on, the most time that you have for a piece, I mean, and it could be the most brilliant piece in the world, is like eight minutes. I mean, how do you do what what you do and get all this interesting texture into a piece? 
when you've got you don't have that that time to let the music breathe. You barely have time to let the well, I think I think that's you're saying when you're working in a shorter form, how do you how do you do more sophisticated things with music? Uh, I think it's it's really it's like this difference between a short story and a novel. You know, you can you can make a really brilliant short story too. It doesn't. You can make a brilliant poem. It's it's like it's it's sort of you working within the constrictions of of what you have and, and to your advantage. Um, I, I mean, that Michelle Gundry piece is a seven minute piece. Do you feel like you have to? I mean, and I was thinking of um, of. Do you feel like you have to settle on simpler themes? I mean, it's like with the Michelle Boundary piece, you, you allow the conversation about, you know, the creative process and the courting process to sort of um, play out with the movie. Do you feel like you have to, if you had to make that into like a four-minute piece, would you feel like you have to concentrate more on the... Uh, yeah, I would probably, if I was going to make that into a four-minute piece, I would keep the last, second half, because I think that's most interesting, and I would put all the background about his movie in the... In host intro, yeah. I would, I would actually, I would be most inclined to keep the emotionally interesting stuff rather than stuff that I thought was really beautiful sound design. It's, it's, it's more about you know, it's about the story. Um, without getting too formulaic about it, do you think that there are certain types of instruments and certain types of music that lend themselves to certain emotions? Because I noticed in the piece uh, you just played, the piano is like kind of sentimental, and the strings kind of lend itself to like the tension of the counterpoint. Uh -huh. I, I I never thought about that. I, I just, it's very intuitive. I, I I think a lot of sounds can have a lot of different characters depending on how they're done. You know, piano can sound really um, aggressive too. You know, um, I I think it's just it's I I, I I I and I'm really reluctant to say that that uh, certain even certain music embodies a certain emotion. You know, it's it's all how you place it with text and and it's, just, it's context is what creates emotion for music. Um, and, and the reason we have certain emotional reactions to raw pieces of music isn't because the music itself contains that, it's because of how it's been presented to us over and over and over again through time. You know, how we always hear it in, in movies, used in movies, for example. That's my opinion, belief. Can you maybe describe a little bit more uh, just what we would have seen if we'd been watching you compose and record the music that's in here? And I mean, I'm thinking, what, is it sort of, in some ways analogous to what you discussed earlier when you know, you're listening to a clip and you're trying out the different CDs. Are you, are, uh -huh. um, with, with this particular music? Um, or, or whatever, whatever yeah, is, is. I, it's, it, it, it's totally, it, it depends on the situation, but th this particular music, what the way I sort of arrived, I wasn't necessarily going to write the music for this piece, but I, uh, I had some music that I had written before that when I was just editing, I was going through the material and I, I just, I thought, well, maybe this music will work that I had. And I, I put the music with the clips and, and it just, it just was right. It was exactly the right tone. It just worked. And so I, I went through and, and this particular music came from a very large project and I had all of these elements, these separate sound elements I used in this, this piece on a DAT, and so I just loaded all the raw sound elements into my session and used those as sort of like Lego bricks, you know, and I kind of mixed and matched them and pitch shifted them, and, and I created new new sound elements to play with them, depending on what I needed in the piece, and I um, I, I just sort of put them together. I, I had this, uh, one, one, one really useful element I had in that piece was a, an ostinato, which was just a repeating note just the same note repeated, but 
it was going between three different instruments at sort of arbitrary moments. So one moment it would be a cello, the next would be clarinet, the next would be a marimba, but then the order of those three instruments was arbitrary. It, it was never the same. So uh, uh, I had that as an ostinato that I could shift, pitch shift, you know, so that I could change the key, I could change the tempo by doing that. And then that was a really nice little skeleton that I could just add sounds on. So it was, it, it was the music lent itself to sort of mixing and matching and uh, and I could work with the music much like I work with with interview clips. Do you do you ever evaluate how you're adding sounds to see if you're shifting the meaning at all? Definitely. Uh, sometimes I think it's okay to shift meaning. I mean, you have to. It's all, it's all a matter of why you're doing it and what, what, what they're saying, you know. I, 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 I don't make rules about like, oh, it's, you know, it's always bad to do that. I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a question of what you're trying to accomplish with the piece. And um, I mean, I, I don't, I, I have no desire or an intention to misrepresent someone's ideas. Um, I, but I think that there's legitimate reasons to sometimes do that that are benign, you know? And I don't want to shut myself off from that. I think that's a really interesting creative area to work in. Do you uh, have any sort of ethical? Right, no, like I said, I don't want to misrepresent some, what somebody says. I, I just don't, I don't have a desire to do that. I really want to get it right, you know? Um, I, don't, I, I, think, I think it's, it's so situational, you know? And, and what, I'm, what I'm doing isn't straight journalism. It's it's more trying to convey an emotional truth. So um, I think what I'm doing is a little bit different than that. Along those lines, when you go into an interview, do you sort of like look at the environment like a like a composer? I'm thinking about the the three tissues. Like, did that was that just a sound that happened naturally, or were you sort of like? Oh wow, that's a sound element that can convey an emotion. Oh, I didn't notice. It, I didn't actually record that. Um, no, that? no. The, Ari collected all the interviews. Oh. My co-producer on the project. But, but was did he say we or like yeah. or she? she. Um, no, it was just something that was I noticed in the tape after I got it. Yeah, it was it was sort of a happy accident. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering if you feel that the your approach does anything to highlight kind of central what I regard as a central philosophical difficulty with radio, which is the idea that the person creating the piece is somehow not there. And, and I'm wondering if you feel like your techniques highlight that the medium is really doing something and that you're really doing something with it. You know, versus a, a sense, because you're contrasting with the journalism approach, a sense that I often get from journalism. We're just here to tell the truth, right? which is, you know, a radical misrepresentation of what they're doing. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have any comments on that, like why you why you gravitate towards this emotional space um, that other people may be like, well, that's not truthful or that's not a straight story. Right. Well, I, I come from a musical background, so I'm I've always been more interested in um, subjectivity. Um, I I, uh, I I did begin this this piece actually begins with a repeated phrases. It, it really 
is very um, blatant about the idea that it's being a it's a created experience at the beginning of the piece. And I I was always actually felt that that I liked that because it was pointing out the manipulation that was going on. But I I mean I I think people are so sort of hip to that these days, you know, that I I don't think you necessarily need to point it out, you know, and um, I, I I don't know. Like I said, I just come from a from a place where I I, I wanted I, I I like making little art projects, you know. I don't really I haven't I don't want to be a journalist. I just don't. It doesn't interest me. So. Um, uh. This is actually going back to the first piece, but when you add a sound, where do you actually go get a sound from, like the bubble sound? Uh, uh, that, something that you might not record. That was a sound that I actually made for, I write songs, and I, I put it in a song that I wrote. And um, I, I made it from, actually from a CD, I had a, you know, the sound effects CD that had all of these different bubble sounds, and one of them was like low bubbles, like, and one of them was high, like fast bubbles, small bubbles. <laughs> And um, and so I had all these sort of different bubble sounds, and then I, I, I played around with them in the pitch shifter. I, ch I made them slower or faster, depending on what I needed the sound to do. And I kind of arranged them in a nice, neat, like, ideal composition, and I just made this sound that did... I had this idea in my head about what I wanted, and I, I kind of worked with it until I was really close to that. So, uh, does, that does that answer your question? Yeah, well, or do you go on the internet to find well, effects or... We have, like at the radio stations or the places I've worked, we've always had large sound effects libraries available to us. Um, so. How long does it take you to put a piece like, say, the, the, piece the, together? The abortion piece. Uh, I, I, um, we collected interviews for about two months before I started putting it together, and then... <laughs> I, uh, the whole production process, editing and doing the music, was another two months. So the whole entire piece was about four months, which was very fast for considering how intricate it is. Yeah. Yes? Um, sometimes when you're interviewing an artist and you just figure that they're going to be really, really fascinating and then just the most boring person on earth, and you collect them. I mean, as, in a circumstance like that, um, what you do, I know that what I, some of the reporters that I work with do is, you know, try to plump up the, the clips uh, from the films and that kind of thing. But, I mean, in your position, is that something that you would do, or would you just chuck the whole thing knowing that you couldn't really get something in depth from the artist? Um, would I pump up an interview with clips yeah, in order to make up for a lack of interesting yeah. you use the clips, you tape? I wouldn't do that, no. I, no, I think that every sound design choice is, you have to have a, a, a reason for doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it all plays a, an intricate role in the piece, and, and ideally it says something that wouldn't be said if it weren't there. So would you just toss, I mean, have you ever been in that position where an artist whose work is fascinating wasn't exactly a fascinating interview? Um, I, I probably have. Um, I, um, I don't know, I mean, if, if the piece wasn't there, I just wouldn't. I would maybe recommend that it be killed or something, I guess. but um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't use sound design. It never works to use sound design to pump up something, to ask a bad interview. This doesn't work. I mean, um, the, my, I guess if there's one thing I really think is important to, uh, one point that I think is important to make, it's that uh, all the sound, good sound design is about uh, 
um, sounds having a purpose in your piece. They, they always have to have a reason for being there. Um, another thing, actually, I, I wanted to point out that's sort of, sort of related to this um, is that, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of things going on in these pieces. There's a lot of layers, and it's very intricate. But in my mind, when I'm doing it, there's really only one thing happening at any given point in time. Like, there's what I think of pieces as a series of events, you know, and, and you, you achieve a sense of pacing by how, how much time you put between those events, basically. Um, and I mean, you have, you know, there's, there's steady states. There's like music can be a steady state or music can be like a steady state where there's an event and then it goes back to being a steady state again. But, uh, you know, but that's like a, that's what you're listening for is the event and you want to make sure that the event is, is, uh, is where you want it in relation to the other events and, and, and supports the meaning of the piece and, to, you know, as, as good as possible. So. Any more questions? Yes. How much do you think about the sound side of overall show that you're working with? Because obviously, you can do things on Studio 360 that would sound weird if it was like one piece on right. all things well, considered, unless they presented it as a special that's, artsy moment. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> um, that's really the editor, my editor's responsibility. He has to make sure, and actually he's here. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, he, he has to make sure that the pieces he's, w the producers he's working with are, are making things that are going to be useful for the show. That's his role. Um, uh, yeah, that's. I mean, but as an editor, I just think it sound right for us. What you're doing is. Um, or maybe you just pick editors. <laughs> probably. Yeah, I usually pieces, I, actually, to be completely honest, I, um, in my time working radio, I've, I've maybe pitched. Like of the pieces I've done, maybe five or ten of them have been pitched, and I've done you know a couple hundred pieces. So most of the pieces, most of the work I get is assigned. So usually they're coming to me because they know what I do, and they have an idea about what I'm going to give them to begin with. So, um, okay, I have one more thing to play before the time we have left. This is also a clip from um, from Shades of Grey, and uh, this is for me a really sort of pure instance of using sound, blurring the distinction between sound and music. Um, in, this, in this clip, uh, the, the sound becomes a music bed. So um, I'll play this. And then she comes in this room. I'm really glad that I went in with you. And undresses from the waist down. There's another chair here for a family member, a friend, if she wants to bring someone or... It was like the doctor wasn't even there. During the procedure. You know, I yeah. almost don't even remember what the person looked like. Uh, it's done under local... I just want to point one thing out about that. Uh, he's talking over the doctor. The doctor doesn't go away. He keeps talking underneath. So it's almost as though he's ignoring the doctor. Kind of goes with what he's saying. That was a really conscious decision. And undresses from the waist down. There's another chair here for... A family member, a friend, if she wants to bring someone, or it was like the doctor wasn't even there during the procedure. You know, I yeah. almost don't even remember what the person looked like. Uh, it's done under local anesthesia; so they won't be asleep during the procedure. We clean the vagina and cervix with some antiseptic solution. We give an injection of some numbing medicine in the cervix. And there's a little cramp when we give that. We wait for that to take effect, and then we 
open up the cervix a little bit with the dilators and there's some cramping involved with that. And then this is the suction machine. There's another canister here um, and there's a tube that comes out of here. And then the procedure itself usually takes a minute or so. Uh, but I just, I just remember the air in that room. It wasn't, it wasn't like um, stiff or, or, you know, stale, but it was, it, it was, so it was fresh, but it wasn't moving. We put a small tube in through the cervix into the uterus. kind of an intense cramp because even with the local anesthesia it's impossible to numb the entire uterus so there still will be some cramping. Unpleasant, gross, barbaric. Scraping and sucking. The tube and the sound. instruments from the vagina. We take the specimen to another room and examine it to make sure that we got all the specimen. All of the specimens are sent to pathology and where they're examined and they're disposed of as medical waste, which I believe involves incineration. Um, so I'll, I'll just kind of go over, um, in the brief time we have left, I'll go over how, how I worked on that section. Um, the sound that you heard uh, was very short in the um, actual interview. It was only about uh, five seconds long. This is the sound. Um. So what I did was I, um, I took that sound. I, w I wasn't actually, I was working in stereo, so it looked a little bit different than this. I had more tracks, but this will give you an idea. I copied that sound into one track and then I copy the same exact sound into maybe four or five more tracks directly below and making sure that it was exactly in sync, like it was exactly in phase. That was, that was really, really important. And the, the easiest way to do that is to put it in grid mode if you work in Pro Tools and um, just sort of drag it to the, you know, um, the next grid marker and then they'll, they'll, all, they'll all stay in sync. And then what I did was I went through, um, and each layer I would uh, equ uh, put through a parametric EQ differently uh, with different settings. So I'd listen to the uh, the sound and listen for the sort of resonant frequencies in the sound and listen for interesting aspects of the sound, listen to for interesting frequency ranges and think of how to accentuate those. So I, I had one layer that was just like a whispery kind of high-end sound. That was and I had another layer that was just like a low grumble, like that kind of sound. Then I had several layers that were sort of chords of re resonant frequencies that I found in the sound that, that I, I used a parametric EQ to really accentuate, and then I cut everything else out. Um, and so I had all these layers that, were, that, that accentuated different aspects of the sound, and then what I would do is I, I sort of sculpt the sound by making volume graphs in each of the tracks over time. So that, that's 
how that was made. So the, the effect is an automated equalizer. Yes. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying you took a, a five-second procedure of sound and you extended it to make it sound like it took much longer than that. Why did you? Th this you wasn't. Uh, th this wasn't the procedure. Oh, it wasn't. No. This was the, actually the, actually the length of that was exactly the length of the procedure. Right, because he said oh. a minute. Yeah. But it wasn't the, the length of the sound of the instrument. No, the, he was just demonstrating what the what the machine sounded like. Um, so in other words, if the procedure had been really taking place, it would have sounded just like it would have taken just that long. It would have taken that amount of time, right? I mean, you would have heard that sound that long. Right, that's right. Oh. Yeah, but I mean, it would have sound. I, I did some very impressionistic things to the sound as I went along. It's becoming a music bed. So it's, it's sort of putting you in, in, a, in a similar emotional state. It, the, the idea was that I, I really thought, I felt that it was important at this point in the piece to give people a sense of, or an, a sense of the weight of this experience. It felt very pressuring. It was very effective. I just wanted to check and see if it was accurate. Uh, yeah. Temp yeah, lengthwise in the same. Does anybody else have any questions? Um, how come you didn't just loop the sound? I, oh, I did. Oh, well, oh okay. <laughs> I, I looped it and then I, I... And then you changed it. I, I changed it, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I didn't just... I, I, is there a question, why didn't I leave this raw sound? Why did I do yeah. the equalizing? I mean, it's a pretty powerful sound. Oh, I see. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I felt like it, it took me to a, a deeper emotional place. It, it's a really... I don't know. I mean, it, it, it would have... It's an interesting question. It would have been a different experience. Um, it would have gotten in the way of the speech a little bit. Um, I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted the sense that the sound was staying loud without it, you know, actually staying loud. You know, the, 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 I was, if, if you, I, I could keep just specific frequencies at the same volume um, throughout the entire section this way, and not have to dip it because of the, uh, the talking. But I think mostly it's because of the emotional experience I wanted to create. And it's consistent with the rest of the piece, too. Sort of stylistically, it's... it's at, the end, at the end of that sound, you kind of made it more, even more um, powerful. Because it, it was already more um, emotional how it just was. So why did you decide to just make it... Because I felt like it went up a little bit more at the end. Oh, we came back to normal. It came back to the actual sound of the end. Before, like it ended, it made more of like that. Sound. Yeah, yeah. That that was the coming back to the original sound. I'll play that again. Um, so, so it's like this. So basically, I'm I, I'm bringing up the level of the original sound back again. So it's like you're coming back to the reality. And why did you feel that to do that? I, I wanted to sh I wanted to start in a real place and then go to maybe a more surreal place and then come back to the real place. That's that was sort of the form I was thinking. Yeah. Do you have a track save that's just like, or can you play perhaps some of the different I don't know bits of sounds that you manipulated so we can hear the difference? Um, actually, I don't. I don't have that available. I, I could play that section again, um, but um, is, would that be helpful? Sure. Yeah. You, you guys want to hear that again? Does that help? I mean, I know it's a really emotional thing. Yeah. No. Um, well, if you want to hear it again, how about this? If you want to hear it again, you can go to on PRX. This piece is available. Um, 
that, that's on the Studio 360 website? Studio 360. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.